Honesty is probably one of the toughest things that we can see in the lives, in our lives. We lie a lot, not necessarily deceptively, but we lie to ourselves. We lie to others generally. How you doing? I'm great. I'm well. I'm good. All of which are lies. We're not well. We're dying, folks. We're not good. Only God is good. And we're not great for sure. I've never met a person that said they were great who wasn't trying to sell me something. <laughs> yeah. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm not great this morning. I'm not well and I'm not good. My body is hurting. My mind is hurting. My leg hurts. My foot hurts. My ankles hurt. And now I've got this arthritis situation in my hand. I can barely grab a cup. My spirit is burdened. My mind is not clear. And Lord knows what else is wrong with me. But God's word is true. And if he requires his vessels of mercy to be perfect, then in order for his word to be expounded, then it'll be silent. So our perfection comes only through that that Christ is. As Brother Queller prayed, that it is all the word is all about who Christ is and what he's done for his people, sinners. To save us and to make us righteous before the Father. And that's what the Old Testament is about. It's the hidden revelation of Jesus Christ that the apostles have declared so clearly that we would know who he is. That we would know who he is. And beloved, if it weren't for the Spirit of God, none of us would even be able to stand together in worship today. If it weren't for the Spirit of God, his word would return void. But the scripture says that it cannot. So that those who have been given faith, those who know Christ, those who have been shown the truth, we will hear the words of our Savior. Even when our flesh resists, His grace abounds. Even when the darkness of depravity stomps its ugly feet, God's grace overcomes. John says, the light has come. And the darkness will not overcome it. And we've looked at that over the last two weeks. We've looked at the creation account. And I want to remind everyone, some of you may not have heard the last two messages, but Moses did not write this by God the Spirit so that we could have an understanding of the scientific notion of how the world began. He wrote this by the Spirit to give an outline of the revelation of God. Now, if God in His infinite wisdom allows us to see things effectually in the cosmos, allows us to see things that only the people of antiquity just carried along in superstitions and to learn things, that's great, but it's still not the point of Scripture. Because all the wisdom of man and all the knowledge of God, I mean, all, compared to the knowledge of God, is nothing. All the strength of man compared to the weakness of God is nothing, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. So that we rest fully in the revelation of God through the scripture. We rest fully in the power of God revealed through the scripture. We rest completely in the person of God who is Jesus Christ, the son of God. And we do not rest on our own understanding. We do not rest in history. We do not rest in traditions. We do not rest in religion. We do not rest in sacraments. We do not rest in, 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 in polity or anything else. We rest in the Scripture. We rest in the Scripture. Now, everybody who is wrong about everything usually yields to Scripture in their own words. Well, it's the Bible says this. But, beloved, the Bible doesn't change its message. And we can all be wrong, but we cannot all be right if we're different. And there are... <laughs> More wrong people in the world than there will ever be right. You need to understand that. In the context of this picture of God taking nothing and creating everything with order and purpose. With God taking chaos and darkness and creating light and life and order. This is why Genesis is written. So that we may have a clear outline of not just what Genesis is about but what the scripture is about. And if we were to, if, if I lectured on John's writing, John is the most Jewish writer of the Bible. 
He writes in Jewish style. He emphasizes Sabbaths. He emphasizes the, per, the perfect number in his writing. He emphasizes the, the chiastic ways in which the literature of the Old Testament was composed. And these are interesting, but we are English readers. We, don't, we cannot understand this construction. It's not possible. And the problem is when we look at it and we learn it, then we begin to worship it rather than the one to whom it points. We begin to worship poetry or liter- literature instead of the living word. And I wish I had time. I think it would be good to, to even produce some or publish some videos or some teachings on how John's gospel is a blow-by-blow example of the creation account, which is why he starts it. And I alluded to some of those as we went through John over those four years. But the Word of God teaches us about God's redemption of His people. And then the apostles always write their letters in relation to problems. It wasn't just a get well card. The New Testament is, wasn't written in a way that just checking on you. No. What's published in the canon of Scripture is the responses and the reactions and the wisdom and the oversight of the joy of God's people in the midst of great problems, in the midst of great chaos. In the midst of great disorder. And the apostles, under the power and the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, gave wisdom that is from Christ Himself. So it is the Christ speaking, not Paul speaking, Christ speaking. Not John speaking. Christ, if it's written in this Bible, it is Christ speaking. God is speaking. So that in this chaos, we can be reminded of the fact that God from nothing created His people to give Him glory, to reveal who He is. And in so doing, He gave the instruction of the New Testament so His people can live in a symbolic way, in a joyful way, in an intimate way, in a place of order. Disorder amongst anyone who names the name of Christ is demonic. Let me say that again. Disorder in the lives of anyone who names the name of Christ is demonic. We do not allow disorder, disorderly conduct, disorderly language, unbiblical expressions, personal ideologies. We correct those. The word correct, discipline, is equivocal to love and specifically to God's love. Hebrews 4 says God only disciplines those he loves. So as I pray for myself, as I pray for others, as I beat my head against the table, as I feel like I just want to jump off a short bridge, <laughs> sprain my other ankle, I realize that it's, uh, it's all about what Christ is, who Christ is. And as his people, we do well to quit praying for God to take away our pain and we we do well to thank him for it. Because spending life trying to clean up that which God has ordained is a fool's errand. And until we thank him, we haven't been given wisdom. And we'll talk about that more on Wednesday. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and nothing. And darkness was over the face of the abyss. And the spirit of Elohim was with the nothing. There's your translation you should hold to. The poetry in our English versions. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the sky and the dirt, the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and then there was morning, on the first day. Now keep this in mind. In every day of the six days, we see evening is the beginning of the day. 
There is darkness, and the morning comes. There is nothing, and then God creates something. There is chaos, and there is order. There is blindness, and there is the beholding of all His glory. It's on purpose, beloved. And this is not new to you. We've read John together for years. And you know what John 1 and John 3 reveal. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Separate the waters from the waters. Let it be. And then God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning on the second day. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens, under the sky, be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In verse 11 God said, let the earth sprout living vegetation, plants yielding, seed, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning on the third day. Now what we've seen and what we've learned over the last few weeks about these first three days is that God is creating a place. There was no place and then now there is a place. There was no substance, now there is a substance. There was no matter and now there is matter. Why did God create the world? In order to put life in it. There was no life, now there's life. Why? Because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were blinded. We were separated from the promises of God. We were unable to come. We were unable to see. It's the picture of Lazarus all over. Lazarus is decaying. His body has odor. Lazarus is rotting. And all the religious are there to see. And Jesus commands that which is impossible to be. He calls the dead decomposing man to life and he lives. Lazarus had no part in it. He calls him out of the tomb and there he came. And then Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And all the world standing there seeing. And I say that, that's an exaggeration, but... The Jewish world was there. It was represented there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were there. The Sanhedrin was there. The professional mourners were there in Bethany. And they saw this man who was dead come to life. And it struck horror in their hearts because they knew this man was from God. They knew he was the Christ. He was Messiah. He was the one sent from the Father. They knew it, but it did not fit their agenda. Because they loved the glory that came from man rather than the glory that came from God. So they set in their ways according to the purpose of God to create chaos. Heaven has been opened up and angels are descending and ascending on the Son of Man. As Jesus taught, or as John illustrates in chapter 1, Jesus speaking in John 1. And so God in His Perfect wisdom causes chaos in order to bring about order. Causes death in order to bring about life. And Jesus speaks of this in his, in his teaching. He says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, life never comes from it. A seed is not alive. Other things have to work on the seed. The seed has to be placed in a place that it can receive the moisture and the life of water. And it has to be put in a place to where it will receive the nutrients that it needs and the minerals that it needs so that it will sprout life. So as a seed it must die. Jesus calls himself the seed that must be put into the ground, into the grave. And then from that place he will bring himself to life. And from his life he will be the life 
that is the light of men, the creator of it all. So these first three days, God creates something tangible to see himself. That's why the psalmist says, the heavens declare your glories. Your creation declares it all. In Romans 1, what does Paul say about people who are obviously looking at that which God has made? And they don't do what? What do they not do? Do they not believe it? No, they believe it. They know that it was made. But they suppress that which is clearly seen by works of unrighteousness, which is what? I'm not going to believe that there's a God who created this, though it's obvious. And the quintessential reality of the, basically like the, the, the main point of what happens when the world sees the world, when the people of the world see the creation of the world, even in themselves, and they don't thank God for who He is. And so God turns them over to a reprobate mind. And some people accuse God. Why would you do that? Because He's righteous. He can What God does is to display to us what righteousness is. How do we know what is good and righteous? Then we see who God is and what he does. That's how we know what is good and righteous. And we see that only God is good. Only God is righteous. Only God is well. Only God is great. So God creates this place. He creates this I'm almost gun-shy now to say the world opportunity, but he creates the space in which the opportunity for life is there. But without him creating the life, it would never be life, you see. But he couldn't create sea creatures in nothing. He couldn't create oxygen-breathing mammals into nothing. He couldn't create humans into nothing. Even outer space is nothing, but it's something. It exists in time. He had to prepare a place for them. He had to prepare a temple for them. He had to prepare a dwelling for them. He had to prepare a place. Why? Jesus says it. Behold, I go, and you can't go. Remember that conversation? The latter part of John's God, the last week of John's gospel, which is the last half of the book, seven days. It's three and a half years and then seven days. Where are you going? They ask. Well, you can't come. You can't come for two reasons. One is that it's not your place to come. Two, you're not qualified to come because you can't do what I'm about to do. You cannot die effectually for anyone in righteousness because you're not worthy of righteousness. You can't. Your death would be justified to kill you. My death is not justified. These are the metaphors in which Jesus was speaking several times over. He says, but behold, I go, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you also will be. I'm not of this world, he says. And you're not of this world because I've, I've taken you out of this world. This is gospel. This is good news. This is what Paul really hammers home in Colossians, isn't it? He talks about being snatched out of the domain of darkness into the light of the kingdom of the Son of God. Who is the one who guarantees our inheritance? Who qualifies us in light with the rest of the saints? It's beautiful stuff. So God in these first three days creates something so that he can put life in it. And then he puts life in it. God said, verse 14, let the lights in the expanse of the heavens separate the day from the night. and Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16 is an important theme in the, in the, in the Bible. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And this picture is to show us that the darkness of chaos and death will not overcome the light of God's power. And this is review. I talked about it the first week. And God set them in the expanse 
to give light over the earth, to rule over the day and to rule over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and it was evening and it was morning on the fourth day. And then God on the fifth day and the sixth day creates every living creature in the sea, in the sky, on the ground, and man, humanity. He creates Adam, and then out of Adam creates Eve. That's the narrative that we see in the special revelation, in the special example going into Genesis 2. So we've had all this, and we've culminated up to this last day. And I'm going to talk about resting today. So in other words, I'm going to talk about the gospel, and I'm going to talk about saving faith, and I'm going to talk about the divine work of God who gives his people this resting beyond comprehension, beyond academics, beyond historical theology. Saving faith is not found in the pages of history. Saving faith is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is found by the Spirit of God causing you to be born again. And in that new birth, you sit down and you stop trying. And people are experts at playing the advocate for a high level of humanistic ideologies in, the, in regards to saving faith. What's that mean? People are really, really smart at trying to convince everybody else they're lost when they truly do rest in the finished work of Christ. And that's not okay. The gospel, according to Genesis, shows you it's a finished work. And that's where we're at. God created man in his own image. Look at verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So we've got the cosmos that has dominion over light and darkness. Like God, because he created it, he has dominion over that. The darkness will not overcome the light. He will save his people. And our flesh and our depravity and our will will not overcome his salvation. He will save his people. They will come to know he has saved them. They will come to know it. See, being saved is not what you do. Being saved is not believing. Being saved is Christ's death. This is the only message of Scripture that matters. Because it's the meta-narrative. It's the overall point of Scripture. Let us make men in our image after our life. So let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens. So here we've got the sea, the waters down below, and the waters above, and the living creatures that are there. As God has separated them and rules over them, now man separates, has been separated to rule over them. And over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is a, the image of God, or what we would call in historical circles... The imago dei. The image of God. That the picture of God's sovereign rule over these things is illustrated in man and woman. Now we're not going to talk about this today, but it's going to be in the next few weeks. I've got a series of these that I want to teach. But do you know what the actual word, let us make man in our image, let man be an idol of us. That's what it means. The word there for image is the word idol. What is an idol? A teeny, teeny little replica that looks like something real. And in Romans 1, what happens? Humanity, instead of thanking God for who He is and His reflective glory in the image of creation, they worship the creation in itself. They worship man. They worship man's wisdom and man's ways. That's what unbelievers do and beloved before God showed us the truth we did it too some of us even in the name of Christianity in the name of some false iteration of gospel that came from the culture let's not hold on to those things as though they're precious they're wicked let them go it's okay it's okay to let go of dead things it's okay to throw the idols in the trash. It doesn't matter if it was great-grandpa's or not. <laughs> They're not that special. 
But men are not God. Humanity is not God. Humanity is a creation of God and it depicts his image in the fact that God established order and rule and showed himself in that order. But that was quickly corrupted. I say the very same day. The very next day. The very moment. I think they were given instruction. I think Eve was here. And then they fell. I don't think the enemy wasted any time. Now where do I get that? I'm just saying. Adam and Eve didn't set up camp for a couple of months. And then things went bad. God purposed it the way it happened. And there it is. We don't need to speculate how long it was. The scripture says, and then... It's not about time, though we could get into that. Feast and festivals show us about time. But if we remember the fall of Lucifer, Lucifer, likewise, in some way, we don't know because the Bible doesn't give us that knowledge, was created reflecting God as an image bearer of God in some way. Specifically, the fact that he was magnificent. So maybe there was magnificence, like the heavens declare your glory. The magnificence of all that's been made. Wow, this is a tiny little microscopic, teensy little picture that a five-year-old draws in comparison to the beauty of the majesty of, of the complete glory of Christ. So it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. That which takes our breath away in this world is, is, is really not going to affect us at all when we see the fullness of Christ. We're not going to say, oh, Jesus, would you... Would you make something over there so I can see? No, because that's a reflection of him. Reflection of his divine power. So here, like Lucifer, he saw this God-orchestrated workmanship in himself, right? And in his heart he thought, I should stand up there and bask in the glory of who God is. And God threw him out of heaven because you don't rob God of what belongs to him. God is not in the business of sharing his glory because if he did, he would not be God. And he would have no glory to share. And then likewise, in like manner, men, as we'll see in chapter 3, fell into sin and rebellion because they did not believe the glory of God. They did not believe the promises of God. They did not hear and understand the decree of God that says, when you eat of this, you will die. It wasn't a condition. It was a direct statement. Then God said, let there be, and then God created. God said, when you eat of this, then God purposed and caused. And that's going to rock some of our boats. The law has always killed everyone who has ever sat under it. Every command that God has ever given has always killed everybody who heard it. It always brings death. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, death entered into the Garden of Eden under the command of God himself because of the law. Do not eat. And from that point forward, however long it was, Adam and Eve were set in their hearts of wondering why. <laughs> Desiring that which they were told they could not have. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he gave them dominion. Now let's go to chapter 2. I just wanted all that fresh in our hearts today. Thus the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, the creation were finished. All the host of them. The whole cosmos is finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and set it apart in sanctity. Because, it, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's it. It's a recapitulation. What does that mean? It's a restatement of everything that's just been done in the first chapter. Just like the very first line, God created the world and it's saying God finished it all. <laughs> it's just a bookend 
It's, it's an easy literary device for those of us who, who, who read literature. For those of you who don't, you don't have to worry about that. I'm just telling you what it means. It's not, it's not hidden message. There's no hidden message here. It's very simple. Faith of a child. God created it all. Okay, that settles it. You know, yeah, they believe you. They don't worry about it. They don't worry about, well, how to, but then we get to a certain age and we start to worry about it. But the heavens and the earth were finished. God's purposes were finished. God's creation was finished. It's finished. God's not creating anything else. Well, how in the world is the world still here? Because it is perpetually by His sovereign providence. Effectually, what? What? Being maintained by the Word of Christ. <laughs> He's created it and it is expanding. And life is what? Replicating. Why? Because that's what God does. And it is finished. Jesus in then the gospel does not have to die over and over and over again for every generation of people. God does not have, God the Son does not have to die in the Eucharist of the cults. We don't have to have sacramental things that are mysterious. The purpose of the Lord's table is for us to together taste and experience the unity of the good news taught by the Word of God concerning Jesus Christ. That we are together in God's creation and redemption. We are together as one body. You know that redemption is a collective whole. It is not an any, many, many, mo or this one, this one, this one. It is a collective whole. All the elect are redeemed at once. All the elect are purchased at once. Otherwise, the blood of Jesus is still being held. And there is some sense in which the philosophy of this perpetual crucifixion and the body and the blood of Jesus appearing in the context of the sacraments makes sense. But Paul forbids it. Moses forbids it. Jesus forbids it. He says it's a finished work. This is, a new, this is the point of life. It's a new covenant. It's a promise that was existing before the world began. All these other things are temporary shadows of everything that God intended to do with it. Everything that God has done. Every, everything. Believe it or not, beloved. Everything. The temperature in this room has everything to do with what God is bringing about for His purposes. Some of us say, well, it's too cold and we're complaining and we need to not complain. Be frustrated. Some of us say it's too hot and we need to stop complaining. You know? I mean, we complain about everything. We don't thank God for everything. We don't praise God for everything. We're liars. Remember, I started out with that. We're liars. I'm just so thankful. You are not thankful. We are not thankful. Because in that same breath, well, I ain't trying to be ugly. You know how that, you know, somebody says that, I'm not trying to be ugly, but that butt is huge. It knocks you right down the stairs. But, well, I, I am so thankful. I just wish. <laughs> Christ is finished. God is finished. The work of creation is finished. So is the work of redemption. The purchasing of God's people. Now, wait a minute. Now, Paul teaches about glorification, and we know in the order of salvation, there's no order of salvation. That's, that's man's systematized way of expressing that which he doesn't understand. Ordo salutus is not a biblical ideology. These are finished works that are all in Romans 8, if you don't know what I'm talking about. That, that little chain, that golden chain, as so many people like that. You know, beautiful stuff. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. What can separate us from the redemption of Christ? Nothing. What can separate us from God's power? Nothing. What can separate us from the finished work of Christ? Nothing. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us. Because God has finished the work and He has rested. That's the reason the creation account is here. To show us that it's about the gospel. It's about the seventh day which has no end. 
It's not ending. It never ends. Jesus is the eternal Sabbath. Jesus is the eternal Son. Jesus is the eternal Savior. Jesus is the eternal High Priest. Remember Melchizedek? Remember the picture of Abraham giving alms and praise and loyalty to Melchizedek? And for those of you who haven't you know, listened to our reading of Hebrews, it's a very fast, I think it's only like 40 weeks, it's a very fast teaching of Hebrews. It really helps you understand this reality. From a Jewish perspective, we're not Jews. Paul had to deal with that all the time. He didn't write to Jewish people except Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews. And so when he was writing to Gentile believers, he wasn't trying to teach them Judaism. He didn't teach them that stuff. He was just trying to explain the simple little nuggets, the good news nuggets, you know. The gospel truths that were essential for their understanding and moreover were essential for their joy. And here's, herein lies the problem. If we misunderstand this reality and the purpose of this Old Testament teaching, we lose our joy because we're pitting all this instruction, all this law. And beloved, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy this fear of legalism by the mercy of God when we get through with Genesis 3. We're going to destroy it by the Lord's mercy if He allows you. You'll be free. You'll be free from it. You'll be free. And some of the things that we say that sound so spiritual and sound so cool because they've been being said for hundreds of years are baloney. They're nonsense. We need to stop saying things that don't make sense according to the exposition of Scripture. The exposition of Scripture, when we read the Bible and God shows us the truths, we should put in our own words what is being said and make sure that it's accurate according to the Scripture. Not trying to adopt what we're reading into the language of someone else that is dead. Who isn't shepherding anybody according to the commands of Christ. A dead man cannot pastor a soul. It is impossible. His writings and his sermons cannot shepherd people. Because whether you like it or not, the reason that this pulpit exists is so that we can hear the truth, be reminded of the truth, be encouraged by the truth, and be corrected in the truth that we might live together in order according to God's commands. With our hope being in the gospel. And people who reject that order have rejected Christ himself. Now think about it for a second. See, people hate that phrase. Rejecting Christ. You don't think a believer can reject Christ? Absolutely. Think about David. But well, David wasn't converted. David was converted as a boy. Spirit of God was in him and working. David's conversion isn't when he sat down and walked through the Romans road. That's witchcraft. The Romans road is not about evangelism. It has nothing to do with salvation in the context of Justification. It has everything to do with surviving Roman occupation. Surviving hatred. Because Christ is king. Christ is Lord, not Caesar. See the context. Pretext is when we take verses and we create theologies around them. Those are always erroneous. Context is when we read the whole Bible and we go, wow, look at this. And it's not harder to do the latter. It's harder to do the beginning. And so that's why we piggyback so much on other people's ideologies and other people's theological systems. It's easier to just repeat what we've heard rather than to learn what God is teaching in our minds. But it's very much easier just to be taught by God. Simply. Every generation of believer needs to have the generations before them, the older women and the older men teaching the younger generations ahead of them so that there is a perpetuity in the teaching of the Scripture that God, the Spirit, is always teaching the next generation live, at time, on time, not archived. God is not intended for the church to live on the archives of dead men, except for the apostles who I would say are quite alive right now <laughs> in Christ. So here we have this seventh day, the rest, the Sabbath. And oh my goodness, the books that have been written on Sabbath, the different ideas and, and thoughts and theologies on Sabbath. Well, what is a Sabbath? What day of the week is our Sabbath? Well, literally, it's Saturday. The word Sabbath means seven the word seven in Jewish understanding is the word of completeness. 
is the last thing. It's rest. So the word seven, the number seven, and iterations of seven, number 12, iterations of 12, but in the context of time, and all the festivals deal with sevens. And, I mean, you know, we'll get into that uh, through the years as I, as I teach some more of the Old Testament. But you'll see that the whole point of creation is to get to the reality that God did all of this to show you He has the power to make order and life out of nothing and death. And we just need to sit down and be still. Rest. Trust Him. Trust Him. That's the image that we'll see in chapter 2 and 3 where... He just gave them everything they needed in the garden. I mean, imagine waking up in the morning, not having to cultivate anything through work. Because the work at rest is much different than the work in the curse. <laughs> work is a gift of God, but it's not supposed to break us. That's a curse. So what's the gift? Work. Why is it so hard? Because we have sinned. Sin has entered into the world. Death has entered into the world. We work. I mean, we can't even get paint the last 10 years. 30-year warranty on the paint. What are you going to do? Peel it off? Take it back to Ace? This just didn't work. You still got to put it back on the wall. They're not going to like, nickel, 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 poof, and it's just going to come back up there. Magic wand it up. Doesn't work like that. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious by definition. Labor. So here we have this rest. And it's why creation is. This rest is Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8, the scripture, well, God tells his people. And you need to understand that the law and all the laws of Moses and the Decalogue and everything else related to it, everything written by Moses to the people of Israel were given to the people of Israel. They were not given to the New Testament church. All of it. What was given to the New Testament church is what some people call the law of Christ, was to love the Lord and one another. And in doing so, you fulfill all the law of Christ. You love one another. What does that mean? We put other people first. We put their needs first. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We can go to 1 Corinthians 13. We can see what love looks like. We can see what the divine love of God looks like for his people, right? That he gave his son, Jesus, who was God, and in all ways in the essence of God, in the reality of God, equal with God, and even in his humanity, equal with God. He did not take that something to be grasped and made much of. He did not come down here to say, look at me, I'm God. He came down here to say, I am in the flesh, the son of man. To redeem my people from their sins. Sent by the Father to do His will, not mine. So you see this subjection? See this picture? And I won't get into it because chapter 2 is it's all about marriage. It's all about the gospel of Christ and His church. In the picture of husband and wife becoming one flesh. Giving themselves to one another. And so we see all these pictures, we see all this truth, and we know that the Scripture teaches that what God has given to Israel was just to show them His glory. To show them the perfection of the One who was to come. Where do you get all this stuff? Man, Paul wrote about it. He wrote about it in Galatians. He wrote about it in Hebrews. He wrote about it in, in Romans, especially chapter 3 of Romans. It's all defined very clearly. Just read. Just read it. Read it. God will show it to you. Don't take my word for it, please. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it set apart, to keep it separate. That's what the word holy means, separate. The word holy does not mean good. The word holy means separate. Part of that separateness is that God's righteousness, you know. Keep it separate. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is a day of rest. It is the seventh day of the Lord your God. You know what he's saying there? This is not yours. It was created for you. But it's mine. Jesus talks about that, doesn't he, in, in the Gospels. When he's out there, they're starving. They're hungry. They've been walking and doing, and, you know, and people didn't really take care of the disciples <laughs> in the latter parts of Jesus' ministry. 
They were so upset with what was happening with coming out of the mouth of Jesus that they, people sort of showed up to watch this stuff burn, not necessarily learn. People love a good nasty fire, especially when people are trapped inside. Oh, my goodness, are they going to get out rubbernecking? I've been to a house fire before. Not, not a house fire. I've been to a vehicle fire before and watched somebody perish in it. 30 minutes later, they're eating sandwiches. The firefighters. I'm going. Another day at work. There were 100 people watching that. I mean, it bothers me still. That was 27 years ago. People like a fire. People like to see trials and stress. God says the Sabbath belongs to me. And I created it for you. And why did God create the Sabbath? You shall not do any work. Your son should not work. Your daughter should not work. Your male slave or your female slave should not work. Your cows can't work. The person that comes and stays with you better not work. You got this workaholic coming in on Saturday. When the sun goes down Friday night, that boy better sit there. You can't take a journey. You can't walk across the street. You can't light a fire. You can't wash a dish. You can't fold clothes. You cannot put on or tie your shoes. You cannot spit on the ground because when you spit on dirt, it becomes mud, and mud is farming. You've changed the composition of the dirt to something that could be used for germination. That's work. And today, today, literally today, in Reformed Jewish circles, there is a multi-billion dollar industry of automated things that work. Light switches that are motion censored. I'm not kidding. Washing machines that are timed. They set their food up. I mean, look it up. Look up Sabbath technology. It's not right now, but everybody's like. Chuk, chuk. But I mean, it's, I mean, there's a lot of weight. You've got to get around it. Can't push a button. Can't do this. Can't do it. Why? Why does it matter? Well, we've got to honor the Lord. What does it mean to honor the Lord? What does it mean to honor the Lord? To thank Him. To remember Him. That's it. Thank Him and remember Him. Now, there are other ways in which we give Him honor. By doing the thing. But that's the simplistic thing. So we stop. He has given us all this. He has created all things for His purposes. He has given us Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And so we can take a day away to stop and listen and be reminded of these things. And so the Sabbath that was given to Israel is not the same thing that's given to us. Jesus has been given to us. It's not about a day. The reason that we worship on the first day of the week, this is the first day of the week, by the way. If your calendar has Sunday at the end, it's messed up. <laughs> Only in your house. Sunday is one, Monday is two, Saturday is seven. We take the first day of the week because historically that's what Christians did. Because 99% of them, including the apostles, still went to the what? Still went to the temples and the tabernacles on Saturday. Why? To preach the good news of Jesus. <laughs> it was an open market. It was an open court. Of course, they didn't bring the sacrifices like they used to do, but they would get together when there was an open market, and they would say, hey, you know, you're here to do the Passover. Hey, you're here to do this. Oh, you're here to bring your offering. Do you know who the greatest offering is? Jesus Christ the righteous. God gave the Son. And they used the Old Testament prophets who wrote of Christ to point to Him and proclaimed Him. And God the Father, or God the Spirit, was in the business of converting His people in His timing. So then they'd get together on the first day of the week to order the priority of assembling together as the church for the hearing of the gospel, for the teaching of the scripture, for the understanding and the interests of one another, and for the ultimate intimacy that thanks God for who He is and what He's done. So the Sabbath commandments relate to the very nature that God created all this redemptive purpose and order. In six days, then He stopped because He was finished. Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 did all the work of redemption. Then he stopped. 
He raised himself from the dead. It was finished. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty. So you see this picture. Deuteronomy, the second reading of the law. It's read again. Keep the Sabbath. That's Deuteronomy 5. In Leviticus, Leviticus 23, same stuff. There's all these commands about keeping the Sabbath. And, and beloved, I don't know how many centuries it is, but it's, it's more than, I don't know how many centuries it is. 30? 40? Sabbath laws. But what is the Sabbath really? It's, 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 the, it's the pinnacle of creation. It's the point of it. It's the reason that we are here today is because of the Sabbath. Because the rest of God, because of the promises of God, this darkness in Genesis 1 has been overcome by the light of God's intersecting and creating something that can see Him. This divine light who is Christ Jesus puts an end to that which is dark and nothing. And so God then arrests the darkness and contains it. And then He creates all things and all of these things are done and finished and ordered so that He can be seen. In the picture of redemption. And in day one, two, and three, God is creating order out of nothing, out of chaos, out of destruction, out of wilderness. In days four, five, and six, He is creating things to live there. In day seven, He shows that He's finished. And then when we get later into Genesis 2, a lot of people, I'll go ahead and say this to you, a lot of people throughout history have said, well, this is the creation of the world and everything in it, and then chapter 2 is another creation. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's very, very popular. Very popular. Why? Because... That's what people want to do. They want to create their own narrative. And it makes good sense when we haven't read Scripture. Because people can create arguments that have biblical anchors but are out of context. And then we go, oh, you got it. That's why so many people think that God said he'll help those who help themselves. The only person I know that helps themselves is a thief. And according to the New Testament, they were hanged on a cross. He's helping them. I don't know. So in this Genesis account, in this rest, we need to understand that he's talking and relating everything concerning Christ and the gospel as the purpose of all life. God set apart this day as a picture of the true Sabbath rest that is in Jesus Christ. And then he gave the commands to Israel. I mean, look at, just in Genesis, I mean, but you look at the Old Testament. You look at the Pentateuch. Look at the five, first five books of the Bible. You see all of these festivals and these feasts and all of these things and all of this instruction and building of the tabernacle and the wilderness and all the things there. I mean, imagine you wake up in the morning and part of God's provision is the manna on the ground that sustains your life. But you complain because as a slave and as a dead person, you ate better. And that's why in John chapter 6, the Jews there for that feast were looking for that manna that was supposedly by, according to the Mishnah and according to Jewish tradition and superstition, there was supposed to be a piece of manna in the Ark of the Covenant. So they wanted to see it. They wanted Jesus to hold up this manna so that they would believe that he really came from God because that was the superstition. That was the sign that they knew that he was coming. So what sign do you bring? You know, he just fed all of them out of a sack lunch, right? And then he gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers that none would be lost. That was the, that's the verbiage of our, of our Savior, that none would be lost. I gather it all up in fullness, in completeness. This is not an accident. It's, it's got purpose behind it. And so as we begin to see then the unfolding of the generations of the heavens and the earth as they were created the day the Lord made the heavens and the earth, when God created man and woman, the Scripture, the Spirit of God wanted to expressly detail that for a lot of reasons. 
Because the giving of the people of God to Jesus Christ is the giving of Eve to the husband. Who gives this woman? It's not misogyny, it's, it's glory. It's just a picture. Because then we see Paul telling in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 that the husband gives himself to his wife. The wife gives herself to the husband. They become one. Each of them looking after the concerns and the needs and the cares of the other so that in that same way, their needs are met, their cares are met, their, their life together is a picture of the gospel who Jesus, as God, came down to be a creation, put into a body that he made for himself, becoming like a creation. And then the elect being given to him and he dying on the cross on their behalf as a substitute to satisfy the wrath of God for them. Then raising himself up so that he would say, I'm going to bring you where I am. I read Hosea last week. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. I mean, when you think about it, you think about Gomer and what God told Hosea to do. Go find a prostitute and take her as a wife. And she's going to be unfaithful. <laughs> but you don't lose her. Don't send her away. That's the picture of what God has done with his church. And I hate to use the term church because the, church, the word church means institution. But we know what it means. His bride, his body. This seventh day, this rest has no end this chaos has been shut down but beloved the picture of the gospel is still shown because faith in Jesus Christ is resting in him well how do I know that I really believe are you resting in Christ because that's what faith, that's what believing in Christ is. You're satisfied. You're settled. It's not about the affections of your heart. Those things go up and down. Some days you like really love Jesus emotionally, and some days you're like, oh, I hope he's not looking. But he is. He knows. Some days we think we're doing very well, and then God shows us just how well we're not. So that we are reminded that it is only by his grace that we are saved. And so faith truly does understand that God is the creator of salvation, that God is sovereign in salvation because that's the point of creation, that he's sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in creating life out of nothing and creating a place and a purpose and order so that life may live. This is the point. So that faith given to us by God, being taught by the Spirit of God, literally sits still and knows that he is who he says he is. And beloved, we learn. Our children learn new things. We learn new things and new ideas and new understanding. I don't necessarily want to say new ideas, but you know what I mean. We come to the knowledge of, of what the Bible teaches. I mean, how many of us have really studied 2 Samuel in the last year? It's good stuff. It's gospel, 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 gospel. Gospel pictures. You know David and Goliath, right? It's not about overcoming our obstacles. It's about Christ. I mean, it's so Christocentric, it's so much Christ in the Old Testament that it's very easy to go, well, this isn't even true at all. These are just made-up stories so it'll fit the gospel narrative. The beauty of that is that it can't be so because it wasn't written at the same time. These are historical things written in a way in which they illustrate Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Don't ever forget that the word Christ and Messiah are the same word. One's a transliteration from another. They're both transliterations from Messiah, is English transliteration from Meshach, which is Hebrew. And Christ is a transliteration of the Christos, which is Greek. Christos. Just transliterated words. They mean the same thing. So in this disorder, God has become the Savior. He has become the Creator. He has become the one who has given life. He has become the one who has given His light. And He has given it to His creation. And He's promised it, as we'll see in chapter 3, to His elect people through the Son, Jesus Christ. 
But beloved, this great order and the creation and everything in it was perfect. It was absolutely good. It was blessed by God and it was there so that it may be multiplied. But this cycle of darkness and chaos continues. God did not intend to create a world that's perfect and we mess it up. I've said that before, but I'll say it again. He continued to show himself faithful to be the sustainer of true life in the midst of death. To be the one who gives true order and light in the midst of darkness and chaos. And in the garden, which all was perfect, he created it was good. There was evening and there was morning the eighth day. Think about it. And so this special creation of man and woman and this understanding of it, um, Genesis 3, chaos just starts back up. Chaos just stirs its ugly head. The serpent enters into the garden and we know the rest. God curses His creation. Then God promises that out of this curse, out of this darkness, out of this chaos, out of this death, He will be the life bringer through the seed of the woman who will crush the work of the devil, the head of the serpent, and so on and so forth. So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? What is glorification really all about? I I never even finished that little phrase because I got on this contextual higher criticism garb. It's about resting forever without ever seeing chaos again. There'll be no more disorder and chaos in our minds. There'll be no more chaos and disorder in our lives. There'll be no, no more chaos and disorder in our joints, our eyes, our bodies, our pocketbooks, our children, our household, our paint. There'll be no more chaos and disorder with relationships. There'll be no more chaos and disorder at all because God will show and His promise will be fulfilled that as He has created the world from nothing and out of order, I mean made order out of disorder, because He has created a people even in their disorder and destruction, He will save them. He has done so in Christ and Christ then overcame the darkness because He is in His righteousness able to take His life up and put it down. He was raised to life, and there is a promise that one day we will be like Him, and we will be with Him. And so what is our job? To give glory and honor to Him by thanking Him for all of it, for the bad, the good, the ugly, thanking Him that He has a purpose in all of it, thanking Him that He is sovereign over all of it, and praying that His will would be done. You know, that's often an addendum to our prayers. Sometimes I think it needs to be the only prayer we pray. Not, Father, do this, do that. You ever tell God what He needs to do? Oh my goodness, I have prayed those prayers. And you're usually in a pretty good place emotionally and spiritually. You feel like I'm going to approach the Lord and just give Him a list. Give Him a laundry list of things He already knows and how He should do it. Father, I need you to do this. And you should do it like this. And Father calls this person. You know what, Father, have your way. You know what's happening. Have your way. It's a desperate cry. It's a resting faith. It's a hope that never fails. And His name is Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going, beloved. We're going to talk about what it means to be blessed next week as we get into the creation of Adam and Eve. And just just rejoice. Just rejoice in the finished work of Christ because He will give us the promises that He's promised. And he cannot fail. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, the truth of, of, of hope, of rest, of the Sabbath. And Lord, thank you for showing us that this world is not what it's all about. And Lord, help us to be patient and thankful and grateful. Lord, help us to live in a a way that is profitable amongst each other, not asking to get our own way, not putting conditions on the things that you've given us and the way in which you've taught us, but, Lord, to just be settled in our spirit. 
And Lord, we cannot change the hearts of other people, but you can, so we pray that you would. We pray that you would bring the elect to the truth of the gospel, that we would share it and that you would cause them to believe. Father, that you would give wisdom and peace that surpasses every bit of our understanding as we praise you, as we pray for each other, Lord, as we sit and rest by the faith that you have given us by your Spirit. You have granted us this peace. And out of this peace, Father, we find the joy of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, who died in our place, whose righteousness has been given to our account. So we are perfect before you. Though we are not in reality, we are before you. Though our flesh is much a problem, often a problem, Lord, we know that you have overcome death through the death of Jesus. You have set aside our sins and placed it upon Him. And Father, You are at rest. Father, You are at rest in Your redemptive work. You are at rest in Your wrath that You poured out on Your Son. You are satisfied, so help us also to be satisfied in Christ. And as we take of these things, as we taste and sense these things that we put into our mouth and remember what Christ has taught us about these things and that we should remember His body, Lord, broken for us and His blood spilled for us. Lord, help us to know that we are together in Christ. We are one in Christ. That's why we do these things together, to remember that we are a body and individually members of it. And Father, we thank you for the, just for your grace toward us and your patience toward us. And we thank you for these things in Christ. Amen.